0: Well, welcome everyone to another edition of uh, Bell's Brief Chats. Um, Before we begin, just a quick word about Bells, uh, which stands for British Educated Life Scientists, of which there are literally thousands working around the globe to advance life saving innovations throughout the health and life sciences. Today, uh, we're very fortunate to speak with Mark Stevenson, who is the executive vice president and um, Chief Operating Officer of Thermo Fisher Scientific and is currently in sunny San Diego. Welcome, Mark.
1: Thank you, it's pleasure to be with you.
0: So let's go right into it and let's start in your formative years. Um, So where did you grow up uh, and go to school and what led to your decision to study chemistry and attend Reading University? Yeah, well, pleasure.
1: I, g- I grew up in the west of the country in Gloucestershire. Uh, I think I've long lost my Gloucestershire accent, uh, but went to school there. You know, I was always intrigued by medicine, technology, science. Uh, when I left school, I wasn't very sure what I wanted to do, so looked at a course at Reading that had attracted me in chemistry, and particularly at an industrial placement at that time, actually up on the northwest when ICI and a lot of chemical industries were there and I was attracted to do a year placement uh, by that as well.
0: And after Reading, you decided uh, upon a business career right from the outset from university, uh, joining the graduate intake program at Perkin Elmer, I think in Beaconsfield. Uh, Had you already decided that a scientific career was not for you in the more traditional sense? Well, I guess it depends on
1: traditional. So, if that was traditional in a lab, probably yes. I, I think I, by then I decided my lab technique wasn't always the best. But you know, scientific career, I was intrigued by um, instrumentation techniques. Um, as I joined Perkin Elmer, you know, it was all kinds of uh, departments. I worked in marketing and R and D at the time. Actually, this was 1985, so PCR and Cetus had just come out with a joint venture with Perkin Elma and a thermal cycler. So I was sort of intrigued at that time by new techniques, PCR just coming on the field, and that was a great start with Perkin Elma. You know, I later sometimes reflect, I if you go to the lab of molecular biology in in Cambridge, the MRC site there, there's a Sydney Brenner quote on the wall, which is always I felt passionate for me, which has been progress in science depends on new techniques, uh, new discoveries, new ideas, probably in that order. And that's been one of my passions, is techniques around new discoveries.
0: Yeah. So you obviously made the choice. Instrumentation was an area you were going to go into. But in earlier conversations that you and I have had, uh, you mentioned that you'd gained some startup experience with a spin out from the University of Kent. Perhaps you can fill in that story. And did the experience point you back towards large companies?
1: Well, a little bit. So yes, I mean, I we went, there were 10 of us, with some protein sequencing technology out of actually the Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research in London, uh, together with our incubator space at the University of Kent. Uh, we built a protein sequencer to compete with an early Caltech Applied Biosystems model. Um, we probably realized we weren't well-funded enough. We weren't capitalized enough at that time. I'm sure we'll come back to the discussion of funding in the UK,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: that was sort of late 1980s. And really, cash flow was hard to come by. So not only were we commercializing, but we were doing that, which led me back to large multinationals.
0: Yeah. And then it was on to perceptive biosystems, working with Nuba, FIM. Uh, now more well known for his venturing work with Flagship in Boston, and then subsequently to Applied Biosystems?
1: Yeah, so I joined with Nubar Affion. You know was another entrepreneurial startup. I was very passionate. New technology had done out of his grad work at MIT. Um, actually, that company Perceptive then merged together proteins together with DNA, which was Applied Biosystems, and then started a journey with me through Applied Biosystems. Um, Applied Biosystems were the first to move me out of the UK, so moved me to Sweden for a couple of years, and then I was a couple of years in Tokyo, and then to Applied Biosystems headquarters, then in Foster City in in uh, in the Bay Area in California.
0: Yeah, and um, so when you went to the Bay Area to, to jo- join Applied, um, did you see that move as almost inevitable that you would, at some point, end up in the US?
1: I don't know about inevitable, but, you know, it was the, the center of where the technology development was going on. I mean, at this time now, we were sequencing the human genome, you know, this is now late in the in the 19, you know, sort of 90s. I, w- I was there in 2004, moved to the US, we sequenced the human genome with some of the technology. It was exciting times of what to do next um and and so it was a very exciting time for genomics at that time and it was good to be at the center of where things were happening
0: yeah and you've obviously been um navigated MA activities that seem to be rife in your particular line of work and there's been a remarkable consistency to your roles a president and ceo of applied biosciences president and ceo of life technologies and now executive vice president and chief Operating officer of Thermo Fish and Scientific. Is that a case of you have found your niche? Well, I think
1: I continue with my passion to be inquisitive for new technologies. So, you know, going to in vitrogen and life technologies, it was more about cell biology I was learning about, and now at Thermo Fisher, very broad depth and breadth of capabilities. And, and meanwhile, the industry is consolidated. Um mm-hmm. And yet my breadth of science combined with business along that journey, I also did my MBA. Actually, it was at Henley Management College, but it merged with Reading University. So, you know, that combination of business and science is definitely my niche, the depth of tools and making a business out of the science.
0: Uh, And and during the conversations you you and I have had, I was struck by an observation you made, Um, that relationships matter before you even know you need them. Um, It's a chord that's very much attuned to the central ethos of what Bells is all about. Uh, Can you expand on that for our listeners? Oh, during the
1: time, you know, where I've been outside the UK, I've always, when I've visited the UK, whether on business or personally, spent time to go visit contacts that I know in the UK. Be that you know, drive up to Oxford and see people at Oxford University like John Bell. Be that you know, go to London and visit members in the government and society groups there. Uh, go up to Cambridge and Scotland. So those relationships have mattered uh, of UK-based people, and that led me to be involvement more in the UK, where the UK government would visit me when I was in San Diego, or now where I am in Boston, the headquarters or engage in the last couple of years in the UK life science industrial strategy. We participated in in input for the first round of that and then the second round. And leading up to the pandemic, I think those relationships were very helpful.
0: And uh, when the pandemic reared its ugly head, can you expand on how that translated then to the UK situation for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to think a year back now, Um, You know, at this time, you know, we knew from the work we were doing in China about the virus and what was going on. It was very clear it was moving quickly around the world. Um, We had designed as our first um, focus area a diagnostic assay uh, using our PCR technology, all that way back to CETUS and the PCR discovery and my history through applied biosystems. And at that time I reached back out to the UK government. Um, you know, both to at that point Patrick Valance had just been appointed. I reached out to John Bell and said, look, could we be helpful? It became quite clear that you were going to need to diagnose the virus and set up diagnostics at quite a large scale, which at that time the UK wasn't set up to be.
0: Yep. Yeah. Um, you've espoused the notion, certainly to me, of, of, of the UK needing to focus on its key differentiators. Can you uh, expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, certainly running a global business, we're often making decisions of where to put resources, You know, whether we might build a new manufacturing site for drugs in Singapore or develop in a low-cost country in Eastern Europe you know, developed locally in the market for China. So our decisions as a global company, what we do about science, you know, are are gauged by what are the capabilities, what are we looking for, where to engage. You know, as I've always thought about the UK, the strength of the academic research and base of science. And that discovery led has to be, you know, one of the core. And if you iterate around that, then we get technologies. I mean, for Thermo Fisher, we have about 25 sites across the UK, about 5,000 employees there, but a lot of the advantage is being close to the science. Um, You know, in the case of the pandemic, what happened to us was, you know, first I was invited to Downing Street as the pandemic evolved and, and asked, could we set up the diagnostic lighthouse labs? But because we already had presence and science in the UK, was able to move quite quickly to do that.
0: And then also entered
1: into other new collaborations with the UK. So for example, uh, John Ballard suggested from the work they were doing with the AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, we could do some work looking at the spike protein. So we've ended up with a collaboration with Oxford University developing serology diagnostics to diagnose with those with a spike protein. And I think that's some of the enterprise as you start to engage global companies engage more with the UK, we engage with the science.
0: Yeah, I think um, one of the things from my point of view, uh, the key ability of the UK is what I would call joining the dots. And I think it's because of what I think is actually a very uniquely strong dialogue between government, industry, academia and charities that offers real scope for innovative thinking. And that's buttressed all the while, obviously, by you know this tremendous cadre of world-class universities that we have, and and the national life science strategy, and of course a nationalised health system. Um, is that something that you see um, as uniquely as as I do in terms of that uh, conversation that goes on?
1: I, I think it's a great foundation to build off. Yeah, the the, the the science, uh, the industrial strategy. Um, you still got to pick your areas, right? Yeah. So I I think one of the things as we come out of the pandemic, we look at the new modalities in pharmaceutical areas. For example, the mRNA vaccine that Oxford have developed. You know, we look at cell and gene therapies as, as new modalities. You know, I think there are areas within that network you can focus on, and and move forward. And yeah. I think you still do have to pick those areas of science because the global competitive nature and the Boston cluster where I am in San Diego clusters and the Bay Area have different capabilities as well. And, and the science is moving very fast, so we have to differentiate ourselves.
0: Yeah. And, and I guess returning to the, the whole vaccine area and the, the task force uh, that Kate Bingham led, um, necessity being the mother of invention, are you able to tell us a little more about what flowed from the initial outreach that you had with Sir Patrick Vallance and Sir John Bell?
1: Yeah, so that initial outreach first moved into diagnostics. Um, So we were asked to go, actually took a PCR instrument into Downing Street uh, in March, which was a rather odd photograph in the Daily Mail the following day uh, of two suited people from Thermo Fisher Uh, carrying that instrument into Downing Street. But at that point, you know, the Secretary of Health and the Prime Minister wanted to see what a PCR instrument looked like. And then after that, two days later, we were asked to a call to arms, could we scale up 400,000 tests per day, which was just a massive scaling of where the UK was at that moment in time. Uh, We scaled up first a lighthouse lab in Milton Keynes uh, then in, in Warrington area in Scotland, and now several lighthouses further. And, and we built out sites to do manufacturing in the UK, uh, to do materials that were in short supply, like the viral transport in Perth in Scotland. Uh, that also led to discussions with the vaccine task force, at Cape Bingham, and actually the BIA had set up a lot of good work with that. Uh, you might have seen the recent article on the, Spectator with mention of him, McGovern, who was on the sub-task force from the BIA and that fine, And and that was very helpful, I think, both as described there, both a portfolio approach, but also what was the additional capabilities and capacities needed. You know, for example, the UK did well, not only have we been engaged in in developing up the, the new vaccine medicine center, and, and putting equipment into that and supplies to do bioprocessing, but also looked at you know, how we could do better clinical trials. We have a site in Horsham that does clinical trials. And so we're engaged in that and some of the uh, trials that went through the NHS, which were sort of basket trials. And then add to capacity to fill finish. A lot of the scaling has now been fill finish capacity. So we've expanded our site in Swindon. Uh, to make actually one of the vaccine candidates, or now approved vaccines in the UK, which needs cold chain capacity. And so that added to finally, we had added minus 80 freezers that we manufacture so it could be stored safely. So all of that was part of the vaccine task force planning group, and we engaged with that and, and made sure the right you know, capabilities were put into the UK. Um, so it was really quite ahead of its it's game, I would say, in the way it responded.
0: And as, as we sort of come towards the close, um, I note that you have overall responsibility for Thermo's uh, digital strategy. Can you tell us a bit more about that work and, um, and whether maybe the UK may be an important venue for some of that thinking?
1: Yeah, so I think it's a big area in digital, but one of the key opportunities I, I think is linking clinical medical records, and of course the way that the NHS is set up and the way that the healthcare system, I think, opens a lot of potential to do different types of clinical trials, in a way that was done and accelerated in the uh, in during the pandemic but also is an opportunity to do those kind of trials going forward. Um, you know, we, we see an opportunity for large scale genomics as well. One of the things we've been engaged in is polygenic risk scores, which can be done uniquely in the UK because of the records and because also the healthcare system cares about the lifetime benefit of the patient. So some of those things that would be hard to do in other countries that don't have a nationalized healthcare system, I think, are opportunities to apply in the UK.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. That's a a brilliant journey so far. I guess in closing, I'd I'd like to ask you to offer any thoughts or advice you could give to Bells in terms of our work and our strategy, and, and do you see us helping to maintain your connection to the old country?
1: Yeah, so I think as we've outlined, And you've explained, you know, Bell's role is incredibly important in this to enable these connections. A lot of these are connections made in times when you may not need or know about those, but there's an awareness needed, there's a coordination needed, and there's a cross-sector needed. I think more when we think about the future of science, we think about academic groups working together, we think about different pharmaceutical and biotech working together, uh, industry devices working together, not only discovery, but in manufacturing and CDMO and companion diagnostics. And then the role of government and the role of funding in that uh, to lay a strategy down areas that the the investment, like the investment in the cell therapy catapult in Stevenage, uh, investment in the BMIC now You know, those are strategic roads and pathways that are necessary for this new industrial economy around life sciences. But I think very importantly, the role Bells can play is in the domain knowledge of that, because connecting the the specifics of what we talk about in the industry uh, with government and advising that I think needs a connector in that. And you connecting with those around the world who are supporting the UK is a very important role here.
0: Thank you very much, Mark. Um, well, I, I leave you in the warmth of sunny San Diego uh, knowing that you will be returning to the cold of Massachusetts and offer you one little bit of solace in that uh, To Sunday we are expecting snow here in London. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I look forward to visiting London again when the snow has gone and also hopefully you've got the pandemic under control with the vaccine, which the UK it seems to be one of the Leading countries in doing that. So, best wishes to you, Nigel, and everyone in the UK.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Mark. Take care. Bye bye.